You know, I grew up really a long line of people fighting for racial justice. My ancestors came out of slavery, founding churches to educate, you know, formerly enslaved people. Uh, but also with, you know, growing up um, in the civil rights movement, surrounded by people who were working with uh, Martin Luther King on the transformation of America. I describe what I do as defending the Constitution and working to, you know, continue to make, try to make real Dr. King's dream of the beloved community. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who is journeying to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with the daughter of the civil rights movement, a local hero of my hometown, Atlanta, Georgia, Andrea Young. So I grew up in Atlanta. My dad was working alongside Martin Luther King with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. My mother taught school, but she had also grown up in the same town with Coretta Scott King. So, you know, as a family, we were very involved. I marched in Selma as a nine-year-old. So it was just very much a part of our growing up. Andrea Young is the executive director of the ACLU of Georgia, or the American Civil Liberties Union, which is a nonprofit that defends the liberties guaranteed to every person by the Constitution of the United States. Andrea joined in 2017, and she is an attorney, but her career reads more like a who's who of history. Andrea is a daughter of Jean Childs Young and the minister Andrew Young. Her family worked with and was very close to Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King Jr. Her parents were civil rights activists, and her father was the mayor of Atlanta. Andrea worked in Washington, D.C. for the late Senator Edward Kennedy, and also for Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney, the first African-American woman elected to represent Georgia in the House. Andrea has spent decades fighting for prison reform and protecting reproductive rights. Most recently, she and the ACLU of Georgia defeated a bill in Georgia that aimed to restrict women's right to choose to the first six weeks of a pregnancy. I wanted to talk to Andrea about her approach and strategies to protect American civil liberties, and what is it about her legacy that drives her work today? So I'd like to use a recent... um, a recent case to kind of almost illuminate what I would call pre-production, production, and post-production <laughs> of a case that the ACLU would take on. In fact, just a few days before this interview, the ACLU won a lawsuit against the state of Georgia striking down a proposed law that would strip away a woman's right to choose after six weeks of pregnancy, mm-hmm. HB 481. Mm-hmm. Um, how does the ACLU of Georgia decide, okay, we'll take this case? Well, this one was— a no-brainer. It's often a discussion between me and the legal director. We have a legal committee also that advises, and but this was just one of those very clear, there's no option. You know, one of the things you learn is that you either argue the law or argue the facts, depending on which one favors your argument. I don't know if I, if uh, I knew that. Yeah. Matt Locke's strategy. Yes. And so this was a case where both the law and the facts, you know, were very much in line with our view, and the judge's opinion was very strong and clear in accepting the arguments that we made, and we're very appreciative. And so for this case, mm-hmm. for this bill, what mm-hmm. what did you argue? What? So uh, one, that 
the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade and subsequent cases had never deviated for the last 46 years that a woman's right to choose and the government did not have a compelling interest to interfere with a woman's decision prior to viability. And so that has been unchanged for 46 years. On the facts of this law, it was interfering with a woman's right to choose at six weeks, which is not within the realm of any notion of uh, medical viability. So, you know, the facts and the law were, you know, very much clear uh, in this instance. And did it feel like a victory that day? Or does it feel like noise? No, it feels very much like a victory because it would have just been devastating for women in Georgia had we not been successful. I mean, no one... There is no one who can get pregnant today that knows what it's like to have the government interfering with their choices in the early months of pregnancy. Those of us who remember are past having to worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a minute to get that. And so in this case, we were arguing the conservative position. We're saying these have been the rules for 46 years. And it would be extraordinary to change them, and there's no factual change um, that would justify something like that. Your father, Andrew Young, uh, made a comment, I believe, I think he was talking at a commencement um, speech. He was saying how um, your grandfather had said, oh, if he had been a dentist, he would have been successful. Um, And I'm thinking about this legacy of, of civil rights, of human rights is a big one. And so I'm curious how you came to the decision on your own as a young person, I'm going to pursue law school. Mm -hmm. Well, when you're growing up around the civil rights leaders, uh, most of the leaders were men and ministers. And so the people that I, the person really that I saw getting a lot of respect as a leader in that environment was Constance Baker Motley, who was a black woman attorney who worked with the Legal Defense Fund. And so I think I I just was really inspired by her to say, this is how you create social change. And then as a woman, men will listen to you as an attorney when they often don't in many other circumstances. And then there were lots of uh, strategy meetings in our house. And as the oldest daughter, you know, I would help my mother, you know, serving dinner, and I got stuck washing dishes. I used to say my my mother and both of my grandmothers ran a bed and breakfast for the civil rights movement because there was no hotel. There were very few places where there was a black-owned hotel that people could stay. So they stayed in your home um, when they traveled. You know, so often women in leadership were, they were doing it all. They were cooking dinner and still running the movement. So it was pretty extraordinary. In that regard, do you feel like there's a, before J.D. and after J.D. of of feeling like people listen to you? That's a good question. I think think even actually after I had a J.D., you know, as a young woman at a time when it was not so prevalent, my, I mean, the years that I went to law school were at the time when the first big wave of women was really coming in. Uh, I mean, at Georgetown, I can remember there weren't enough bathrooms for the women students. There was still a lot of pushback, but I think less than if I hadn't been an attorney. 
I know that your parents must have been busy with with the movement, and they also had their own jobs. They had a family with four kids. Can you paint the scene for me of how how you unwound in your household? So, you know, they were very young. My parents were barely in their 30s when the civil rights movement was in its heyday. And so, you know, they would have parties. You know, they were, um, I, you know, Calypso music was popular, so they would have this limbo stick. My dad was really good at it, bending backwards and going <laughs> under the stick. And so, you know, they would come over. We would have, you know, there would be college students. There would be the 20-year-olds uh-huh. with, with SNCC. Uh, my dad, I guess, was one of the younger uh, ministers. And he was a minister, but he wasn't a Baptist minister. So he was a little hipper. And he had lived in New York. What so, kind of minister? So he, uh, United Church of Christ, which founded a lot of schools right after the Civil War, which is how both my parents' families became uh, members of the of what was then the Congregational Church and is now United Church of Christ. You had mentioned your ancestors. I'm wondering, um, have have you always known that, or is that something you discovered as an adult? I knew more about my mother's family. They, uh, she had an uncle who was kind of the uh, family historian and who tracked down um, some of the family history. And then my grandmother picked it up. And so we grew up actually with the story that our first known African ancestor who had come directly from Africa was a princess. And she is actually named princess in the documents that the um, people who owned her maintained. and Do you know what state she was in? Uh, she was in North Carolina, and we were—we don't have the—we have the first known owner. Um, we don't have papers in terms of where she embarked. And from there, we're able to trace the family as they moved to—and uh, the different branches of the family. Some, some became free and went to Ohio, and some— uh, remained enslaved and went to Alabama. And so immediately after um, one of my mother's ancestors, uh, he was free before the end of the Civil War. He provided the land that the first school was built on for the uh, newly freed people. You're saying he donated the land? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was in business. You know, there was this big opening during Reconstruction. And so he was in business. They had a grocery store. They sold candy. They had a bakery. And so this whole story of how things opened up and then were shut down by segregation is very much my family's story. And thinking about Reconstruction and then thinking about, you know, really the rise of Jim Crow and the surge of violence as well as, you know, taking back the resources and things like that. That's interesting to think of your family's arc in regards to this historical mm-hmm. arc. Yeah. Uh, your CV almost reads like who's who in history, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like growing up from Thomasville, Georgia, and then moving to Atlanta, going to Swarthmore, going to Georgetown, becoming this, you know, part of this wave of women uh, getting their law degrees. How did you come to work for Senator Edward Kennedy? Well, my dad was, I think, mayor of Atlanta. We had a—there was a supporter of his who was also a supporter of Ted Kennedy's, and Senator Kennedy was looking for staff, and uh, he encouraged me to to apply. And so that's that's really, you know, how it happened. And 
you know, the ability to work on social change, you know, from Washington, from a position of power. Um, And in doing so, you know, I worked with him on the passage of the Martin Luther King Holiday Act. I worked with him on the anti-apartheid measures, went with him to South Africa. Can you Um, break those down for me? For example, it's really hard to imagine today (laughs) even the— even like a guy trying to save face that he voted for Trump, it's hard yeah. to imagine that that same guy would say, oh, I don't believe we should have an MLK holiday. But it's yeah. really hard. It, yeah. it, I I think a lot of Americans maybe forget that that holiday had to be fought for. Yeah, it was, and it was quite recent. Um, and it was vetoed by Ronald Reagan. And... And we overcame the veto with the— What was the strategy to overcome the veto? You know, there uh, was—it was an anniversary of the March on Washington. Mrs. King did a lot of lobbying. But frankly, a lot of what made the difference is that Ted Kennedy took it up. I mean, he was just one of the hardest-working people in the Senate. He had amazing relationships with everyone on both sides of the aisle. And what does working a lot look like in Washington? Does that mean like he was always like, I, you know, for Matt, I just imagine him like cutting people off after they come back from lunch or mm-hmm. calling people or fielding three calls at once or? He was the kind of person. So if he had a morning meeting, you would um, meet him out at his house and ride in and brief him on the way. He was always prepared. You know, if he traveled to a city on the flight back, he's writing thank you notes. Okay. You know, um, if you're waiting, you know, he's he's making phone calls to people. You know, he's just working long hours and always reaching out to the largest number of people to, you know, let them know that, you know, he cares about them and appreciates their support, you know, sometimes to, you know, talk over issues with them. You know, he's just very, um, he had a bag and you could put reading material in the bag. He would take it home and read it and bring it back with notes marked, you know, marked wow. up in the in the memos. I, I also want to know, what was it like to... Um, you know, you have to have such decorum and master of language, both as a lawyer and being in D.C. After a decade that really, I think of the 60s, is really riddled by violence. You have the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., Medgar Evers, um, JFK, and then later Malcolm X. And then, you know, you have the rise of the Reagan era. Mm-hmm. In my perspective, I feel like the Reagan era uses respectability politics to to mask some of the greatest inequalities mm-hmm. using that codification, using that master of language and using that master of law. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you personally? Well, I was you know, just really grateful to be someone who had their finger in the dike. And, and we got some wins even in the Reagan era. We extended the Voting Rights Act. We protected the Civil Rights Act, which had been gutted by the Supreme Court. I think that there was a bipartisan openness to uh, a need to, you know, heal the country from injustice, that racial injustice had been a really major factor in, you know, how the African-American community was failing to thrive and barriers that were put up. Like what kind of barriers? Um, You know, housing discrimination, um, you know, not having access to uh, educational opportunity. Uh, even today, I mean, I think, you know, University of Georgia, you know, there is no affirmative action. And it may be, you know, maybe there's 6 or 7% of the students at University of Georgia are African-American in a state that's 30, 35% Black. Yeah, I never understood that. Yeah, because they're, they're, it's 
there's just no attempt to say, you know, that there is a value around um, integration. We did desegregation, but not integration. When you think about some of your mentors and mentees, uh, you worked for Cynthia McKinney, the first woman in Congress from Georgia. Um, what was that experience like? Well, it was it was exciting, uh, largely, frankly, because it was also the first term of Bill and Hillary Clinton in the White House. So, <laughs> so it, was, it was a really exciting time, those two years. You had a big class of women that came in into Congress. It was a new district, so we got to set everything up fresh, new offices, you know, all the staff was new. A lot happened in uh, the Clintons' first term, and I, I say intentionally that, you know, they really were a twofer. Um, and so— And why do you say that? Um, a lo- she was really the progressive. He was the kind of centrist Democrat. She was the one who had sort of a liberal reputation. People knew her from working with Marion Wright Edelman in the Children's Defense Fund. My dad knew her. She was in at Wellesley, and he spoke, I think, for their graduation. So he heard her give her the graduation speech at Wellesley College when she was, you know, just a college student. Wow. In, like, 1969. Yeah, and so she um, had—when my mother was um, head of the International Year of the Child under Jimmy Carter, Hillary was first lady in Arkansas, and so she was very involved in the International Year of the Child in Arkansas. So there are lots of relationships, you know, in in the African-American community and progressive circles that people had with, with Hillary. So in 1992, which I guess was called the Year of the Woman, mm-hmm. you did you go to D.C. with uh, Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney, or did you stay in Georgia? No, I was actually—I was already working in D.C. then. So, yeah, I, I put together the office in Washington, and I was chief of staff. You got to pick the out the art. In <laughs> we just, you know, no art. <laughs> pick, up the, pick out the computers. You know, this is the early days, too, of figuring out how you work on computers. And yeah. Having computerized letters. and But I— um, because she wasn't married, uh, I got to do a lot of things, you know, going to the White House, taking, you know, trips so I can remember, you know. And, and then the Clintons were very social, so, you know, they were always having, you know, having things at the White House. Um, but I remember she was in Vogue because she had this very unique style. She wore these gold tennis shoes. She had her hair in braids. So it's this very distinctive, uh, distinctive style. Um, and we were— um, able to get, you know, a lot of things done quickly. A lot of the access to voting uh, was passed in those first few months of Lilly Ledbetter Act. You know, so there were a lot of things that happened quickly. That sounds so exciting. Yeah. I'm just thinking of, like, moving a progressive agenda forward yeah. and going to parties. Yeah. That's like, <laughs> yeah. that's, the, that's the way you want, right? right, right it also right. kind of reminds me of how you described your childhood because your parents were— young uh, civil rights activists and leaders, but they were also young enough that they wanted to have parties at the house. Yeah, very social. Yeah. And, and, you know, politics is a very social thing. And I, I would say sometimes, well, you know, I can sit here and try to call 10 people or I can go to this reception and I can talk to them and, you know, get a free drink also. <laughs> right. The original phone tree. Yeah, right. Are you— uh, 
I, I believe you met your husband um, at an art gallery? So um, my husband is a recovering lawyer, oh, uh, art, consult- art consultant and dealer. And we met through a mutual friend. Someone had known us, had known me probably 30 years and him 20. She took me over to say, you know, you need to see his art collection. And yeah, we just, you know. What was the art like? Well, so my husband's Jerry Thomas. Um, His theory of collecting is that African-Americans have produced uh, some of the most important art using every material, every genre. And so the collection... He has an African art collection. He has uh, Southern self-taught artists, African-American masters like Romare Bearden. We have a whole dining room that's nothing but Romare Bearden. You know, so it's it's quite exceptional. I would just go with him to different, you know, art exhibits. So do you still have a lot to talk about? <laughs> yes, we do. We <laughs> And uh, there's never any, uh, there's never uh, a lack of things to talk about, whether it's, there's a current Romare Bearden exhibit at the High in Atlanta. And so it's really quite extraordinary. It looks back on the South and his childhood. So Romare Bearden does, uh, it has an Odysseus series where all the characters are not only Black, but it also has elements of African-American culture in the series. And I was reminded that when I, in the elementary school that I integrated, one of the ways I dealt with the loneliness was to read. And I used to read, you know, it was a young adult version of uh, the Odyssey. And I, I read that over and over. So, you know, I know all the stories really well. You know, I think of um, the siren, the, you know, battle with the Cyclops. I think, you know, just the cleverness and also— I forget how he out-clevered yeah. the Cyclops. He blinded him, and then he uh, told him his name was No Man. And it was trickery. <laughs> oh, right. So, he you know, he where he didn't have the strength, so everything he did, and maybe that appealed to me, too, as a, you know, girl who wasn't very big, um, you know, that he used his brain— and my grandfather had always said, you know, don't get mad, get smart. If you lose your, you know, if you lose your head in a fight, you lose the fight. So I think he was also really exemplified using your brains uh, to master a situation that you really, you really shouldn't have been able to overcome. I forgot about that. No man, no man, yeah. no man. Yeah. Your memoir that you dedicated to your mother, what was your process writing that? Sure. The book I wrote about um, my mother is uh, Life Lessons My Mother Taught Me. My mother died very young, younger than I am now, from uh, cancer. I'm so sorry. And so it was quite, you know, was, you know, in in many ways it was kind of, you know, the end of Camelot. You know, um, we had this really wonderful family where things had always gotten better. (laughs) And uh, this was, so, you know, partly I started doing it just to get over it, just to try to, you know, wrestle with the emotions and the sort of, the, the being confronted with that kind of mortality and that you're not, um, things aren't always going to be better and you don't, you know, there's a different kind of insecurity when you don't have your mom. As long as you have a mother, you know, 
for most of us, it means, you know, there's there's someone who will always take you in no matter what. It's <laughs> the ultimate security. Um, and so I started writing to, you know, remind myself of the things that, uh, the things that she taught me and the things that I wanted to uh, kind of hold in my heart and, and never forget. And also because I opened it up sort of talking about my parents as kind of this binary, you know, sun system that um, really they were both stars, but people saw him and didn't see what her contribution was and what an important um, person she was in her own right. And then it just kind of, you know, sort of flowed from there. It's just thinking about, you know, what are the the themes of, you know, what are the what are the lessons to remember, and then what are the stories that kind of go along with that. And, and I was fortunate because I had just finished helping my dad write An Easy Burden, Civil Rights and the Transformation of America. So the editor from that was also someone that I had, you know, been working with and was really a good, um, really good support in helping me kind of think through a way to structure it. How did writing the book um, either make you remember something that you had maybe put away or think about her in a different light? I guess I'm asking, did it help your grief? Well, yeah, it definitely, it definitely helped my grief. And it also helped me to, you know, because you just, I just didn't want her to be forgotten. And even today there, you know, and I put a lot of, I put photographs for every chapter because people don't really have images of black women. I mean, you've got the people in the movies, but images of real black women and the things that they were able to achieve. I mean, she went to Europe in the 50s. And what makes that really extraordinary is her sister was already living there. And so I think, you know, there are all these stereotypes about, you know, what it what Black women are like. And so part of what I wanted to do is also illustrate through her narrative, this is one way that Black women are in America. And, but let's, you know, broaden the notion of what that can be and, and what that, that looks like. You mentioned that, you know, while you're in school, while you're in Swarthmore, that primary sources were, were not... Uh, we're still like almost like this new thing mm-hmm. um, of giving credit to to the person who experiences it mm-hmm. rather than the academic who writes about it or mm-hmm. I, I would say would codify it in mm-hmm. a way. And then to describe the memoir that you wrote and using images to really show the dynamism and brightness of, of you know, your mother mm-hmm. I think is – um, really extraordinary to me because you're doing that on on your own. You're creating your own primary source. Mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. for other people to see. Yeah, and that was help because she she did a she took one of these classes about writing your own memoir, and so she did a lot of writing herself. So it, but there were a lot of things too that were, you know, I knew were important to her uh, to include. Could you give me an example? Um. You know, she talked a lot about describing herself as someone who um, also forgiveness. So there's a chapter about marriage, and one of the things that she would say is that there are three secrets to a good marriage, forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like being married to a man. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, so that was something directly from 
what she talked about. And yeah, I mean, she was um, the, um, you know, I mean, I see the the, the sort of toxic narcissism in Donald Trump, but for any politician, there's a degree of narcissism. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't do it. You know, you have to be somebody who feeds off of the attention of the crowd. And so, you know, I would say, yeah, I mean, my, my dad was somewhat of a narcissist. He had, you know, and so she did have to live with that. So that requires a lot of forgiveness. Right. And also that the love and the, the connection that you have um, sustains that, even mm-hmm. sustains those moments of, oh, I'm going to, you know, that it carries you. Yeah. And that you remember, too, what, you know, kind of what this project is about. And I think, you know, there's a notion, too, to say, you know, um, a marriage is about more than the two people, especially, you know, especially if you are part of this larger, you know, you're sort of part of this larger story. And so I think for that for public people, um, there is this responsibility to also kind of your the people that you're leading for whatever reason. Do you think there's also this kind of um, exponential pressure on perfectionism or the per, the perceived perfectionism of um, a black power couple, or I don't know if yeah. if that has anything to do. With I think um, I think you know African without even being to the level of a power couple. I think that the you know um, African Americans who achieve are taught you have to be twice as good, and so there is that pressure in any African American who's achieving. Um, you know, beyond just kind of regular, and even regular, you know, I mean, even if you're just an ordinary, you know, ordinary African-American in what what would be considered an ordinary job, you have no room for error. Um, You don't get second chances in the same way. You don't get, you know, hugs from the judge. (laughs) You know, Um, and so, you know, what we see in the criminal justice system, you know, we also see just in regular employment and, you know, every study, you know, will show that, that that employers don't necessarily see the exceptional performance by African-American employees. They only will notice subpar uh, performance that African-Americans have to prove they're competent. White people have to prove they're incompetent. You know, so the standard is very different. So I would say that that's a, a burden that pretty much every African-American that's trying to make something of themselves experiences. And your mom, um, what was it like deciding to have a child? For her? For you. For me. Oh, well, I always knew I wanted to, um, that I wanted to uh, have Children. My mother really took great pleasure in her children. She mm-hmm. was a teacher. She was, you know, she was a, she was a very attentive, you know, very great mother. Um, so I always wanted. The question was whether I would have one or two. So I actually feel like I I came out really well with just having the one, <laughs> <laughs> because our you know our society makes it very difficult for working women to have children, and I mean, it's actually a conversation I'm having with my daughter now. I mean, I have a granddaughter who's uh, 10 months. She just learned to pull herself up into a stand uh, by, holding on, by holding on to the sofa. It's pretty Ooh. exciting. 
you know. Um, and, you know, my daughter's also very, you know, very gifted professional. And so, you know, it's uh, you're, you right now you can take her to a workshop and you can take her with you when you do things. And the more kids you have, the more more of a challenge that becomes. So I think you, one, it's just wonderful, but also I think you, as a social change agent, you know, you understand the, you know, many more dimensions of what it's required for everyone to have a fair opportunity. So we are um, going to move into our lightning round. Uh-oh. Uh, I know. <laughs> Is there anything that you miss about the Atlanta of your childhood? You know, what I miss about Atlanta of my childhood is that th- we didn't have traffic. <laughs> Do you have a preference of unwinding to books, TV, movie, walk, by being by yourself, being with somebody? So my idea of a vacation is um, a J.D. Robb mystery um, and, you know, just sitting on my back porch or preferably the beach would be even better. <laughs> yeah. Favorite quote? To those to whom much is given, much is required. And uh, a mentor? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been really blessed with, with mentors. I would say, you know, my my inspiration for going to law school was Constance Baker Motley, who became, you know, a federal judge. Do you have plans to run for office? No. Okay. Even if I gave you a book, how to run? <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you okay. gave me a book. Noted. <laughs> You grew up in a time when you integrated your elementary school. You can go to school with other white kids, but you couldn't order a shake and fries at our beloved varsity or go on a boat to Lake Lanier with them. Mm-hmm. You're still fighting a fight that you've been fighting for decades and that your father has started, essentially, with MLK over 70 years ago. How can we honor your journey? Well, is to, you know, keep it going. Um, I mean, I think Dr. King's vision of a beloved community um, is something that, you know, is a global ideal. So even whatever we're able to achieve in America, and I think with the climate crisis, that brings it home more than anything. We can't achieve anything for ourselves that doesn't take into account the whole world. Um you know, and so I think it's it's really to expand the vision and to keep working toward it. And is there any last comments that you'd want to say um, about menopause? <laughs> well, you know, for at least for me, it's a real thing. Um, there needs to be a lot more uh, done about it. But I think, you know, I think it's liberating. Um, it's really great, like, not to care. I mean, my husband, you know— uh, thinks I'm great looking, that's enough. I don't really care about the rest of them. And uh, I think it's it's kind of liberating, and it, particularly now that I'm a grandmother, that the wisdom, you know, there's a there's some new research that says, you know, postmenopausal women are like the most productive members of the, of the tribe. Uh, I believe and, that. And I think we see that today. You know, you think about, um, I think you see that today. So I feel like you know, these are some of my most productive years because I'm, you know, I don't have to raise children and, you know, I have all this experience and um, I'm trying to share it, you know, with as many people as possible, which is why I'm glad to do this interview. 
Well, we are so grateful and we are happy to soak all of your years. <laughs> thank you so much. Great. Thank you. You can learn more about Andrea and the work that ACLU does at ACLU.org. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis, the iHeart team, and especially Gail Reed. You can find a picture of me and Andrea in the studio on Instagram or Twitter at The Women Pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.